0: Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. I use she or they pronouns. This week, I'm talking to Parks, who is a medical professional who works with Appalachian Medical Solidarity. And when I say this week, I mean... I recorded this interview at the very beginning of starting this podcast, which was just before the pandemic. I started this podcast in early 2020, when I had no real reason to think that uh, COVID was going to become COVID in the way that it did. So (laughs) this episode about, you know, medical things and disaster situations didn't really seem like it made a lot of sense. It's not what a lot of people were thinking about when it came to disaster and medical issues uh, throughout all of 2020 but i actually i still think this information is really important and um there are so many other crises that are happening now and will continue to happen and so we talk a lot about well just what it means to be a responder to disaster uh, especially from a medical point of view and i hope you get a lot out of it i know i did This podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts, and here's a jingle from another show on the network. One, two, one, two. Tune in for another episode of Marooncast. Marooncast is a down-to-earth, black radical podcast for the people. Our host, hip-hop anarchist Simile the RBG, and sex educator and crochet artist KLC share their reflections on maroons, rebellions, womanism, life, culture, community, trap liberation, and everyday ratchetness. They deliver fresh commentary with a queer, transgender, non-conforming, fierce, funny, southern girls, anti-imperialist, anti-oppression approach. Polly ad and bullshit. Check out episodes of Maroon Cast on Channel Zero Network, Buzzsprout, soundcloud google apple and spotify all power to the people all pleasure to the people peace so welcome podcast thank Um, you do you want to introduce yourself with whatever name pronoun and affiliations that you would like to be known for for this podcast
1: Sure. So my name is Parks. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm affiliated with Appalachian Medical Solidarity.
0: Um, Could you maybe start by talking about what Appalachian Medical Solidarity is, like what you all do?
1: Sure. Appalachian Medical Solidarity is a group that is centered in Asheville and the southern Appalachian area, and we provide disaster medical interventions, um, particularly after hurricanes and things of that nature and we're working on other projects around the area. We do a lot of education in the area. For example, we taught a CPR certification class this weekend um, and a naloxone class.
0: So one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you is that you told me once you you, you went through the, the list of, of how people desi- die in natural disasters and how it's not what people think it is. and clearly um preparing or understanding how natural disasters works is like comparable to understanding how larger disasters work and and things like that so i was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about disaster and what the actual like kind of threat models are
1: sure so there are several kinds of disasters and natural disasters as you and your audience are likely aware um one that my group deals with specifically based on our geographic location is hurricanes in developed countries or countries with well-built infrastructure such as buildings and roads deaths from hurricanes tend to come after the event itself so the hurricane may kill less than 10 people i'm not i'm making up numbers there but a small number of people will be killed by things like wind and falling trees and power lines coming down and you know, maybe a tree falling through their house and hitting them, that type of thing. More people die in flooding during the event than anything else. So most people don't die from being hit by a tree or blown away. They die from drowning and flooding, particularly when trapped in houses or when trapped in their cars, situations like that. So in places like the United States, those fatalities tend to be low more people die in the few days after the hurricane so as the power is out and infrastructure is down and people start to do things to cope with the infrastructure being down part of the issue in developed countries is people are not accustomed to the infrastructure being down so they're not necessarily aware of safety precautions to use when using things like grills or propane heaters or other non conventional items or in non-conventional areas, so people tend to die of carbon monoxide poisoning when they're using devices that need to be used in a ventilated area indoors, such as propane heaters, um, gas grills, things of that nature. They also tend to die after those events from chainsaw injuries, that's a pretty common one, or from improper use of chainsaws, so trying to cut down trees and people being untrained to do so and having the tree fall on them in that scenario, that type of thing. That's a much more common way to die in developed or overdeveloped countries after disasters. People also die from food poisoning after disasters as they eat things out of their refrigerators and freezers that are going bad. That's not as common, but it does happen. Sometimes people have issues with the spread of contagious illnesses inside of shelters, but here again, that's not usually causing a lot of people to die. It's causing a lot of people to have colds.
0: So would you say that one of the better ways to prepare is more about like knowing how to use your emergency equipment, like knowing like chainsaws and propane and all that, or
1: I would. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Knowing how to use equipment without, you know, knowing how to properly use a chainsaw, knowing when and where to properly use a propane heater. The other thing I would suggest is simply not using those items. If you're not trained or unsure, you know, after a hurricane event, if you're a little cold, you know, put on extra layers if that's an option. If you can eat crackers and peanut butter instead of trying to, you know, make some kind of makeshift stove inside your house, then do that. You know, wait till it stops raining and you can move your grill outside. So use a little bit of common sense and forego small, what are you know, small luxuries essentially like cooking your food indoors or heat if you can deal, if you can live without it.
0: I want to ask you about. Appalachian medical solidarity and your experiences with it and like what you've seen or what people who are part of ams have seen or like uh i know for example when we had the conversation before we did this interview that you talked about um well you're a medical professional and yet you're often not using your you know surgery skills or something like that um on the ground that's true. You know,
1: with Appalachian Medical Solidarity, I am a medical clinician and I don't end up using my medical skills very often after disasters. We occasionally will see things like people having to use insulins, types of insulin they're not accustomed to, and they don't know how to do the calculation to identify the proper dose. So sometimes people need help with things like that and upper respiratory issues. They're not usually, um, what we're seeing at, as a volunteer community group are not the kind of issues that people are going to the hospital for the hospitals tend to still be in place people go to the hospital Um, so the things we're seeing are relatively minor as it comes to medical issues what we're seeing more is people needing help mucking out their houses needing help cutting out drywall needing help getting trees out of the road or off their houses so mostly what we're seeing is a great need for cleanup and also a need for supplies to get into certain areas. So it can be difficult with trees down and power lines down and flooding and roads washed out to get things like clean water to certain areas or food that people can eat. So a lot of transporting supplies in the, you know, one to three days after a disaster before FEMA is able to come in, um, ends up being something that we see a lot.
0: That's one of the kind of advantages that I found that or at least people talk about like autonomous and anarchist uh, disaster relief and mutual aid houses about like the ability to mobilize quickly and maybe like without some of the inefficiencies of large organized structures. Um, And I'm wondering if you want to talk about how you all organize to get supplies and aid to crisis areas.
1: That's a great question, and it's one that we've been working on. I think we can improve our dispatching capabilities and how we identify different areas in need. At least in our recent experience, one of the things we've run into is a need to pre-stage before disasters when we know a disaster is coming. So that's Mm -hmm. not always possible. But with hurricanes, we tend to have a sense that that's maybe going to hit. So getting closer to the area or as close as you can to the disaster zone and stay safe. So that you're not just adding to the, you know, people that need to have supplies brought to them. So staying in an area that's near the disaster area where you're still safe. And so you're able to quickly mobilize supplies and able to mobilize personnel into areas that are hardest hit is an important thing. We mostly do it through cell phones and at times driving around randomly, honestly, Mm -hmm. and looking for people. We've also watched flood maps online to see where flooding is the worst and where places might be isolated. News media pretty quickly starts to cover and and tell people where isolated pockets might be, like this town is cut off or that town is cut off or, you know, these highways are washed out. So you can use that information to try to dispatch your personnel to those areas and to dispatch supplies to those areas. But I think that could be improved upon. So pre-planning is certainly a helpful thing, you know, trying to come up with who's going to be a dispatcher, who's going to watch the news, who's going to watch the flood map, um, who's going to be pre-staging, all of those things are important. And one of the points I think also is that specialized personnel aren't necessarily needed in these cases, you know, just having people who can drive, having people who have vehicles that you know, like trucks or trailers that can move a large quantity of water. And just having people that can drive back and forth supplying water and food to certain areas is invaluable. You know, it's nice to have a nurse. It's nice to have someone who can use a chainsaw, but it's, that's not the majority of people that are really needed.
0: How do you get into isolated areas?
1: That's a great question. There was one hurricane in which we teamed up with some private pilots to, be airlifted into those areas. I'm not sure if airlifted is the right word. We weren't jumping out of the planes, but <laughs> small planes that could land in fields or could land in small airports in rural areas would take two or three personnel and as a quantity of supplies. And they were able to fly back and forth and bring supplies into places where roads didn't have access for several days. And that was invaluable. So that's one of the, the more fancy ways that we've been able to access... <laughs> folks who are cut off. Other ways are, you know, tall, four-wheel drive vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, so just having the kind of equipment or having the kind of vehicles that can withstand those kind of conditions and get into places. You know, if you have a small, two-wheel drive hatchback car, it's not going to make it. Yeah. So having somebody available who has the type of vehicle that might be able to get into more um, challenging environments.
0: One of the things that I'm interested in is sort of the, the cultural bridging that happens during disaster and crisis. And uh, I've I've heard stories that um, there was kind of an interesting cultural difference between mm-hmm. the types of folks who own small airplanes and the types of folks who organize anarchistically to bring supplies places. Is that something you feel like you can talk about? Or?
1: Sure, that's absolutely the case. And I think that's a major issue in people signing up to be personnel after disasters. You know, I think people who initially are going into these areas in the first two or three days need to be people who can interface with all kinds of people who can withstand being insulted, who can withstand, you know, different things like that. Like, it's not a, it's not a safe and supportive working environment in any way. You know, socially, the people who were operating the private airplanes, for example, tended to be wealthy individuals, often were white males who were wealthy a lot of them or possibly all of them were Republican um, these kind of things so folks who feel uncomfortable interfacing with those folks or feel uncomfortable building bridges with those folks you know there's a need to be polite there's a need to reach out there's a need to work together there's a need to problem solve with people who are very different from yourself who whose ideas of you know even who should deserve help are very different than yours mm-hmm. so being someone who's very diplomatic is very valuable in those scenarios and folks who aren't as diplomatic or who don't want to interface with people you know that are very different than them are possibly better suited to roles like doing dispatch or gathering supplies or you know there are plenty of roles to do but it's important to consider that folks are going to have to interface with a lot of different people who are not necessarily being their best selves and Mm -hmm. who are very different than them and have a different idea of reasonable politeness than they do.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's kind of one of the things that's sort of interesting about disaster scenarios and apocalypse and all that kind of crap is that you get into this idea of a lot of different types of communities having to pull together in order to survive. Um, and one of the things that I'm kind of trying to explore with this podcast is the sort of idea of the opposite of a, instead of like a, a nationalist approach to disaster where you like bunker up with your friends and you have yours, fuck you, like this like internationalist approach of like um, working together with diverse communities and things like that and so it's just fascinating because usually when i think about like working with diverse communities i don't think of like um right-wing libertarian types you know um and yet i mean there's a certain amount of like and maybe i'm being overly generous but like okay yeah they are be a rich republican but they're willing to fly into storms and in small planes in order to give people things for free so that's kind of what we want from people you know
1: i absolutely agree you know there's something called the disaster bug which is Mm -hmm. where people go into disaster zones and they um they get really fixated on it or they really enjoy it and they seek out that scenario again and part of the reason for getting the disaster bug in my opinion is you know people are at their worst at times but really overall people are at their best you know people are ready to collaborate people are willing to do things they wouldn't normally do, like help people they wouldn't normally help, things like that. So watching communities draw together, watching people, you know, go to their neighbor's houses and see if they need anything is is beautiful and a wonderful thing. And, you know, you get to meet all kinds of people that you wouldn't normally get to meet, or I get to meet all kinds of people that I wouldn't normally meet. And I really valued that in my experiences. You know, I think it's interesting to meet a rich Republican dude that wants to fly people into a difficult flight situation and deliver food to people they might not normally think about. I think that's great. You know, it expands mm-hmm. their horizons, potentially it expands our horizons and, you know, ultimately it helps people. And that's really the purpose. But I personally think that's great, but I, I also recognize that that can be a challenge for some folks.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I want to talk about how have you, and if you, don't we can cut this part out um have you had to do sort of disaster triage or like like in what way has like your as a as a medical provider or whatever um how do you plan for medical care specifically in disaster situations or especially if um you were preparing for a situation in which hospitals weren't available but even in preparing for situations in which hospitals are harder to get to and things like that
1: Sure. That's a reasonable question. And I don't have a great answer to it, actually. But, you know, hospitals and and paramedic teams and and those kind of groups already have triage processes in place. Mm -hmm. So there are, for example, toe tags or tags that medical personnel will put on individuals indicating the severity of their illness. Mm -hmm. And then they will decide based on the number of casualties and the number of people needing medical care what order to treat people in when Mm -hmm. they can't treat everyone at once. So those kind of organizations already have a system for that. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't say that my group has had a need to triage people in that way um, because we simply haven't seen large numbers of injuries at once, which is fortunate. Yeah. Um, It would be good for us to prepare for that. Perhaps I haven't really taken it into consideration, (laughs) (laughs) but You know, a lot of what we're seeing is needing to assist people using their own medications. So Mm -hmm. needing to help people find their inhaler in their ruined house or find a neighbor who uses an inhaler that they can borrow um, or calculate a new dose of insulin based on what insulin might be available to them. So getting people supplies, getting people medications that they already take, you know, having people helping people to find the medical equipment that they already have that they need those things are helpful and priorities, you know, we certainly prioritize people with medical needs in terms of transporting them to shelters or transporting them to hospitals, things of that nature. Um, but we have not been responding in the, I, well, I should say I have not been responding in the minutes and hours, you know, a few hours right after a disaster during this time, people may need things like swift water rescue or may need things like, airlifting out of situations where there may be people who are injured enough that they require getting to a hospital within a few minutes or within an hour those would be done by those kind of rescue things would be done by specialized teams Mm -hmm. and we're certainly not trained to do those
0: okay and maybe also the people who are more immediately already on the ground or
1: correct so not only people with specialized training but people who are already on the ground you know I would certainly advise any group to be well aware of what I would call scope of practice. So be well aware of what you can safely offer and what you cannot safely offer and don't go outside of that. Don't try to offer something that you aren't trained to do. Don't try to offer something that you're not prepared to follow up with, that you're not able to do all the way through. You know, don't offer someone transport to the hospital if you're not sure you can get them there Mm -hmm. or if you're not reasonably sure you can get them there, you know, because you're delaying they're getting into an ambulance you're delaying they're getting into a medical flight helicopter if you're offering something you can't follow through with if that makes sense
0: yeah that's actually a really interesting concept and like could apply to a lot of situations but even gets back to the like the chainsaw use for example Mm -hmm. of like Mm -hmm. um you know i i've only recently started actually training with a chainsaw and i always thought it was just a matter of like making sure you're not in the way of the blade and like making sure that you know if it bucks back the blade won't hit you and then that's like that's a big part of it but then i'm like learning that there's like a lot of stuff about the way trees hold tension and that apparently what kills a lot of chainsaw operators is just like releasing the tension on a tree and having everything go crazy um and so the a scope of practice that's a it's a useful phrase i hadn't heard before
1: Absolutely. And I would say, you know, do what you can. A lot of people don't do what they can, you know, step up, do what you can decide you're going to help. That's the first thing, you Mm -hmm. know, assess the situation, decide you're going to help and then help in a way that you're able to. And of course, if you set off in a truck, you don't know if you're going to come up to a washed out road. And if you do, that's okay. You know, turn back, don't try to cross you know, a flooded area you can't cross or anything like that. Don't try to offer medical care to someone who's more hurt than you can really help them with or, or do what you can, Mm -hmm. you know, if what you can do is hold their head still while the EMS gets there. Great. Do that, Mm -hmm. you know, do what you can absolutely step up and do what you can, but don't try to do things that are outside of your abilities and, and don't take risks in a scenario where, it's difficult to get people in and out of the situation if you are a relatively healthy person who's going in to help and you get hurt mm-hmm. you are delaying care for people who are already hurt you know you're clogging up the system and you know you're also getting hurt which is a problem but not <laughs> only that but you know you're clogging up the system you're making one more casualty for medical personnel to deal with you're you're making it worse mm-hmm. You know, one of the first rules in medical care is do no harm, right? Mm -hmm. Don't make it worse. And it's really easy to make it worse. It's a lot easier than you think to make it worse. You know, don't go in and say you're going to sterilize water and you don't know how and you poison someone. You know, don't go in and think you're just going to figure out a chainsaw and get hit by a tree. You know, there's lots of things that might be trickier than you think. Yeah. Um, So go and help, but, but sit and think a while before you on a project that you might be unprepared for and might be dangerous
0: what are some if people are interested in doing either disaster response or preparedness um within their own communities for potential disaster mm-hmm. um what are some of the uh, skills especially like first aid or medical type skills that you think people can and should develop like a in a more generalized sense like what what should people be learning and focusing on
1: Um, Basic medical care at home is a good thing to focus on. So the number one thing that I see people not doing enough of is washing their hands and washing their hands properly. That sounds really basic, but people really don't do it enough. So learning how to wash your hands, washing your hands for an adequate amount of time with clean water, with soap, and doing it consistently when you need to. You know, if you're touching a person and you go touch another person and you haven't washed your hands you're spreading, you know, potentially you're spreading all kinds of pathogens from one person to another and to yourself. So learning how to wear gloves, when to wear gloves, how to take them off without contaminating yourself, you know, how to wash your hands in a way that's effective. I would start there. I think those things are really important. Recognizing an infection is a helpful thing. You know, being able to look at a wound and say, within reason, if it's obviously infected or not. I mean, that's that can be a specialized skill, but there are some things that, you know, a regular person might be able to, to learn and advance that may be helpful. So those things are important. I would say also um, water is a big thing after any kind of disaster that's going to affect infrastructure. So focus on getting enough water, storing enough water, knowing how to sterilize water knowing water from knowing what source to get your water from you know you don't want to use flood water for example that's very difficult to impossible to sterilize in a way that's going to be accessible after a disaster you know there might be people out there with specialized skills who know how to do that but most people are not you know that's not a good idea Mm -hmm. you know finding a stream is going to be better Um, collecting rainwater is going to be better Um, there's lots of different you know water sources that you could identify that that might be better choices for you so you know if you want to get fancy or do a little more you might identify water sources near your home for example you might find out where your nearest stream is Um, if you're you know if you're living in a place that might have the kind of disasters where your water infrastructure might go down and that's more likely in some places than others but first and foremost I would say water
0: what um. Can you talk more specifics about, like, for example, what kinds of places of water infrastructure is more vulnerable, mm-hmm. and also like how people might um, yeah, get water, uh, filter water, sterilize water, whatever they need?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, the CDC has some good guidelines on that, mm-hmm. um, as does FEMA, actually. So FEMA's website has good instructions on what kind of sources to look for after a disaster firstly knowing about storing of water is helpful it's not great to store water in your empty you know gallon water jug that you got from the you know from the store unless you're able to sterilize it and you can sterilize it by using a mix of bleach water i don't remember the ratio but shake that around in your container empty it out rinse your container and store water Mm -hmm. so prior to events know how to store water if you're going to use your own containers and know how to store it um properly and you know be wary of glass containers because they can break okay. and if your water supply is in glass containers and it breaks y- you know you're out of luck so first of all know how to store water beforehand and if you're able to do that you can avoid having to find sources of water afterwards which is ideal you know sterilizing your tap water is something that may be accessible to you if the tap water is not contaminated the other thing to do is to know how to turn off the main, the water main to your house. So if there's an announcement that the water is contaminated, you would turn off the water main to your house, empty the faucets, and you can typically still use the water that's in your hot water heater if you have one. So, mm-hmm. And a lot of this is geared toward people who live indoors, obviously. So mm-hmm. if you don't live indoors, it's going to be a different scenario. But if you do live indoors, using the water in your hot water heater can work. And there's a, usually there's a, um, a way to empty it there's like a faucet at the bottom of the hot water heater or something like that. And you can use the water in there. You'd probably want to add bleach to it, but look up the proper ratios of bleach to water and, you know, have some bleach in your house. That's fresh. Bleach goes bad after about maybe six months or a year. So make sure you have some that's unopened and not flavored or scented, or I guess they're not flavored, but whatever it is, (laughs) Not, not scented without like additional cleaning agents. You don't want to use like a tile cleaner with bleach. You need to use, you know, the regular bleach in a bottle mm. that that's all that's in there
0: what about um like the kind of water purification tablets and things like that Do they I- go bad?
1: iodine water purification is not generally recommended um generally bleach is recommended because it kills more of the pathogens that you're mm. going to be encountering after that kind mm. of disaster you know if that's all you have then that's all you have but in terms of pre-planning and what to get i would recommend bleach
0: are you talking about like maybe you'll get giardia or like maybe you'll like die immediately or like what's the what's the threat model from from contaminated water like flood water or whatever
1: that Mm -hmm. depends I don't have a great answer for that you know in eastern North Carolina in flood water there are millions of dead animals floating Mm -hmm. Um, you know stuff from septic systems can be in there so any kind of fecal oral type pathogen could be in there and you know think of water with you know Human waste in it as well as rotting pigs. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes the wastewater pits overflow, like from coal fired power plants have wastewater pits, mm-hmm. and those can get into the groundwater or into the floodwater. So there's not just bacteria in floodwater, there's also toxic chemicals that can't be filtered out, that can't mm-hmm. be removed with bleach, for example. So that's one of the reasons why floodwater is not going to be a good option you know if you can find a stream that's not contaminated heavily you know that's not a strange color that's not covered with flood water that may be an option Mm -hmm. collecting rainwater is an option you can um, remove salt from salt water by like taking a large pot with a that has a lid with a handle turn flipping the lid over so the handle is facing inside the pot suspend a mug or a cup from the handle inside the pot on a string Mm -hmm. put salt water in the bottom of the pot, boil that for 20 minutes or so. The condensation will collect on that upside down lid, drip down the handle and drip into your mug um Mm -hmm. you can probably find diagrams of that and your listeners might already know how to do those kind of things home distillation Um, right but some some knowledge of home distillation might be helpful you know i've never been in a situation where that was helpful but i'm sure people have been
0: yeah you mentioned uh how some a lot of the advice that goes around is more helpful for people who live indoors Mm -hmm. do you want to talk about um do you have any information about either how to help people who are or people who are themselves um Mm -hmm not living inside um, Mm -hmm. in disaster situations?
1: If you know disaster is coming, it's good to let people know who might not Mm -hmm. already know. So some folks who live outdoors are certainly going to be in the know about, you know, things that are happening in their community. But It can be helpful to spread that information so let people know that there's a hurricane coming let people know that flood is flooding is going to be happening so that people can if they have encampments they can move them uphill you know i live in a mountainous area so you know in this area moving uphill is an option Mm -hmm. that's not necessarily going to be an option in a lot of places but seeking shelter securing whatever you know materials that you have for housing or trying to keep dry all of those things are going to be important letting people know where security or um, where like emergency shelters are in case they want to go to emergency shelters can be beneficial just making sure people are aware in advance you know somebody who i live inside so somebody who lives outside might be able to might be better able to provide information on preparedness in that scenario
0: off the top of your head or what are some of the common myths about disaster survival that that irritate you
1: (laughs) um I don't think this is a myth, but I think people are both underprepared and overprepared. Sometimes people prepare for like situations that sound more interesting Mm -hmm. rather than situations that are more likely. Mm -hmm. For example, people might have wilderness survival skills that involve starting a fire with sticks or, Mm -hmm. you know, distilling water in strange situations or I I don't know. Um, And while those things might come in handy at some point, Mm -hmm. things like washing your hands and knowing how to store your water reasonably safely um you know knowing the expiration dates of foods or how to tell if your meat is spoiled or not Mm -hmm. you know those like less romantic Mm -hmm. i guess um skills are actually going to be far more important and far more useful and far more likely to be utilized so i think it's easy to prepare for like what are we going to do if civilization collapses and we're all living in the woods? Like we need all these skills. And like, you know, mm-hmm. do you like, do you really like in what situation <laughs> are you going to like need to go and kill a deer because you really can't get literally anything from the grocery store? Yeah. You know, that might, I don't know, maybe that happens, but you know, in the United States, that's really unlikely to be depending on where you live you know Mm -hmm. maybe if you live early and you already depend on killing deer killing animals for your food then of course you know you're going to continue to rely on that food source Mm -hmm. but for people that don't already rely on that food source you know developing those more specialized skills is interesting and cool but don't neglect the less interesting skills and preparations like it's good to have a radio that runs on batteries Mm -hmm. it's good to have extra batteries do you need 100 guns? Probably not. You know, guns are really, really overrated, I think, after disasters. You know, most people are very kind to each other after disasters. Mm -hmm. You know, if people are looting, it's generally because they need the stuff. And if you're the kind of person that wants to shoot people because they're stealing items from a store, I don't know what to tell you other than, you know, you might reevaluate your your life (laughs) Um, but you know i don't know how useful that's going to be unless you're planning on hunting because that's something you already rely on Mm -hmm. you know for for a lot of folks like myself who don't rely on hunting and live indoors you know a gun is not actually going to be helpful Mm -hmm. i don't think in that situation (laughs) you know having social skills um having the ability to talk to people that aren't like you Mm -hmm. you know knowing how to wash your hands (laughs) (laughs) I really can't say it enough. That's
0: going to um, be the title of this episode. Yeah. Wash, Wash your, your hands. Fucking hands. Wash your hands.
1: <laughs> yeah. Wash your hands and do it right. Um, <laughs> you know, you, using hand sanitizer. This is an important one. Mm-hmm. Using hand sanitizer after you go to the bathroom is not effective. You need soap and water. Okay. The kind of pathogens that are spread from the oral fecal root, so to speak, are not cleaned off your hands by hand sanitizer. What Use. is hand
0: sanitizer good for?
1: Hand sanitizer is good for anything that gives you a stuffy nose. Mm -hmm. Um, Anything that gives you diarrhea, you need soap and water. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not anything in the world, but, you know, that's a rough estimate.
0: Well, okay, so you talk a bit about risk analysis. Uh um, I'm really excited about what I think hackers, but maybe other people coined threat modeling Mm -hmm. and, like, people talking about, like, you know okay your your internet security might be really good but based on the wrong threat model mm-hmm. um, and you know a gun for example is a good tool for certain threat models mm-hmm. like someone specifically trying to kill you right um, but a very bad tool for a lot of other threat models
1: mm-hmm.
0: and um, and so it sounds like kind of what you're talking about is that people have sort of poor threat modeling when they think about preparedness in general?
1: I think that's a great way to put it. You know, just like if you're writing and knowing who your audience is, you know, Mm -hmm. know what you're preparing for and, and be fairly reasonable about that. And don't, you know, skip things that you think are obvious or skip things that you think are boring. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, if you're preparing, I don't know if people prepare for earthquakes. I'm not sure how on earth you would do that. You know, they hit randomly and Mm -hmm. horrible things happen. But (laughs) if you're preparing for a hurricane, if you're preparing for flooding, um, you know, prepare for that in a way that makes sense and do some research. You know, it doesn't take very long if you have access to the Internet or a library to do a little bit of research and don't discount, you know, government websites. Mm -hmm. Really, the CDC offers good information. FEMA offers good information on preparedness. You're going to have to tailor that to your own specific needs, of course. You know, if you use insulin and it needs to be kept in a refrigerator, you need to focus on being able to refrigerate that. Okay. You know, if that's not with a cooler ice or whatever, you need to prioritize ice if that's your situation. Other people are not necessarily going to need to prioritize refrigeration after that kind of event, for example. Or, you know, as I was saying, if you're planning to live in the wilderness with no contact with any kind of, quote, civilization, unquote, then like... Your skill set certainly needs to be different than if you're trying to survive, you know, an urban setting that suddenly has no infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the main issues, um, well, I don't know about the main issues, but one of the issues after Hurricane Sandy in New York City was people in high rises who couldn't flush their toilets mm-hmm. and didn't have and lived, you know, on the 10th or 12th floor of a building and were unable to haul water up and down the stairs because of physical issues. Um, And that quickly became a very, very dire problem. Yeah. So, you know, and that's a problem that's specific to a certain physical scenario. Yeah. So preparing for your physical scenario and preparing for the actual threat and having some sense of, you know, maybe over-prepare slightly, Mm -hmm. but you don't necessarily need, like a year's worth of food for an event that's probably going to take a week or two to stabilize
0: right well if you have a year's worth of food then you have you know 300 people's days worth of food
1: that's true and there may be you know scenarios in which that makes sense but in that scenario it's still a week's worth of food you're just taking into consideration the number number of people people. yeah Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you want to be able to feed your whole town that's awesome you know is it necessary I don't know
0: yeah you know you once uh, said one of the, something to me that was one of the best examples of risk analysis that I actually use fairly often, where I, I came to you with a medical concern. And I said, am I going to die because of this or that thing? And uh, you said to me, well, I can't tell you that because you're, you're honest to a fault. Um, you're like, I can't tell you that you won't die because that's completely possible. You could also be eaten by a shark today in Asheville.
1: Right, I remember that. Yeah, and and I think those things are reasonable to keep in mind, you know. You're not likely to be killed by a chainsaw if you're not using one, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> after a disaster. So, I don't know.
0: So I'm not going to wear my chaps all the time.
1: Right. So you don't need to wear your chainsaw chaps all the time necessarily. Unless you just like them. Maybe that's a good look. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But yeah, you know, think about what's likely and think about what's important. So if something is unlikely to occur, but will definitely kill you if it does, mm-hmm. you may want to be, have some preparedness for that within reason. Yeah. You know, if something is not likely to happen and not going to be a big deal, if it happens, you don't necessarily need to prepare for that. Like, how much do you need to prepare for boredom? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe a little bit, but that's not super important. Mm hmm you know it's not that likely that you're going to be stuck in your house more than a week but if you were and you didn't have water you could die Mm -hmm. you humans can survive a fairly long time without food Mm -hmm. but we can't survive more than a few days without water so you know that's why i emphasize that too
0: so eat peanut butter and crackers rather than tainted meat if you're only stuck for a week
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, um, if you have the ability to cook, you know, if you have a grill, if it's not raining, you know how to use the grill. It's the mm-hmm. first day after your freezer has gone down. Absolutely. Cook all your meat, mm-hmm. you know, and, and eat it and share it and all those things. So that makes sense. But if it's been a week and your freezer's been off for a week and you've got meat left, you know, and that's it. Don't eat it. If it's been sitting out, mm-hmm. you know, unless it's jerky or something like that. You know, you don't want to risk a diarrheal illness or a vomiting illness if you if your water supplies are scarce. Particularly.
0: Probably final question. So talked a little bit about the, the kinds of people that you'd be working with to go into disaster areas, but um, in terms of going into communities often as outsiders, what does that look like in terms of not being more trouble than you're actually worth in terms of making sure that it's like sort of a, a consensual relationship with the people? Mm-hmm. Um, I know I was talking to someone who's from um, a Caribbean island and he was talking about how, you know. Non-official organizations showing up to help are often just in the way and doing all the wrong things. Um, while, of course, also most people I know are also very critical of the official organizations who go in to help because then they take resources and centralize them and disempower people and cut people out of agency and things like that.
1: Yeah, don't don't go to a disaster area unless you have truly something to offer and you're able to get yourself in supply for all of your needs the entire time you're there and get yourself out if you can't do those things don't go Mm -hmm. Um, unless you're already there and you're trapped with other people then respond accordingly but you know if you're not already in a disaster area that hit where you are living don't go on vacation to see how bad it is you know don't drive around in an area to gawk at the damage you know there's that's rude. Don't do that. And it's not helpful. You know, if you have like two power bars and one 16 ounce bottle of water, don't go into a disaster area and think you're prepared because you're not, you're going to be a drain on resources. You know, there are going to be a lot of people who already have skills in an area, you know, if an area in the United States is hit by a hurricane or, you know, some kind of disaster, there are already medical personnel there. Mm -hmm. You know, there are already people there who know how to use chainsaws. There are already people there who know how to hunt or, you know, various things. So to some extent, you know, keep your ear to the ground, see what people need. If you can, you know, ferry water to the edge of a disaster area and give it to someone who is already networked to distribute it or something like that. That may be very helpful. Mm-hmm. And it may be boring to you to drive, you know, hundred gallons of water from, you know, where you live to the edge of a disaster zone and then go home again. You might be tempted to like dive in, drive around, go be helpful. But, you know, driving water to the edge and going home is really helpful in certain mm-hmm. scenarios, you know, driving in with a bunch of food that you don't know where you're going to leave it. And you're just driving around trying to give it to people who don't, you know, who you don't, I don't know. You don't know where the need is. It's not necessarily as helpful. Yeah. Don't don't become a drain. Don't go and need to be fed or housed or clothed or need water in an area that's already strained. Mm -hmm. You know, the more people that there are in a strained situation with limited resources, the less those limited resources are able to go around. So be realistic about what you can contribute and be realistic about whether what you can contribute is going to be better than what you know the people already the skills that people already there have if that makes sense that
0: does um if someone wants to learn more about either Appalachian Medical Solidarity or other mutual aid disaster relief organizations do you have a place to point them to or anything like that
1: I'm not sure I think AMS has a Facebook page I don't actually know. Okay. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm not sure. If you're in the Asheville area, you know we do put out announcements for classes and things like that. You could certainly come and talk to us. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a team with AMS with Appalachian Medical Solidarity that does stuff on computers mm-hmm. and social media. And you're not. On I'm that not. Team. <laughs> in the, I'm not on that team. Um, <laughs> And I don't use computers outside of work if I can help it, because I don't like them. So I'm okay. sorry, but
0: we can I'll, pro- probably I'll, find that
1: information and add it. <laughs> I'm
0: going to add it, yeah. <laughs> I'll do an aside. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, thank you so much for, for doing this interview. Is there, any, is there anything I, I missed? Any like final takeaway besides wash your hands? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Just have water, wash your hands. <laughs> Those are really important. Decide to help, you know, mm-hmm. I think is what I would say. Decide to help and realize what, what helping is and realize what not helping is in any given scenario. You know, don't let your worry about, you know, being a burden or not knowing how to help or not having specialized skills, don't let that stop you from helping. Mm-hmm. Decide to help, but help within reason. Usually, you know, find out what people need, find out what people don't need. Don't guess what people need and just start sending a bunch of crap to an area it's not helpful mm-hmm. you know but find out where you can plug in try to get reliable information on what's needed and if you have the ability to meet any of those needs then do it absolutely but don't go outside of your scope of practice don't go outside of what you are actually able to contribute um, contribute what you can don't try to contribute what you can't okay
0: thank you so much
1: yeah absolutely
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell people about it. Please tell the machine overlords about it, or rather tell them to tell other people about it by liking and subscribing and posting and following us on social media. We have, you don't even have to just follow me on social media now. Live Like the World is Dying has its own Instagram page and Facebook page. Although Facebook is on, besides being terrible for the world, is also really terrible in terms of engagement for projects it's actually just a garbage fire that is trying to get me to buy advertising and then turns down my advertising i finally like gave in and tried to give it some money to so that people who like the live like the world is dying page actually see live like the world is dying posts and i was rejected and well fuck you if you don't like me i don't like you either and clearly that's my only problem with facebook or the algorithms that run the world is that they didn't like me personally. Anyway, you can also tell people about it in person. That's even cooler. Um, And if you want to support this podcast more directly, you can do so by supporting me, which will soon be supporting the uh, Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness uh, publisher. But you can support us on Patreon or currently me on Patreon, later us on Patreon, depending on when you're actually listening to this. Uh, Patreon.com slash Margaret or patreon.com slash I don't know what I'm going to change it to, but I'm sure you can find it, you clever people. And there you can support us. Um, There's Zine that goes out every month. It's very behind, but it's going to become less behind now that's a collective project. And all kinds of good stuff. Also, if you don't have any fucking money, don't give me any fucking money. It's totally fine. We'll give you all of our shit for free. If you message me on any social media platform, I'll give you access to all of our content for free because money should go from the people who have more money to the people who have less money and not the other way around. In um, as much as money is a useful construct, which is a different argument for a different time. In particular, I would like to thank... Sean and Hugh and Dana and Chelsea, Eleanor, Mike, Starro, Cat J, The Compound, Shane, Christopher, Sam, Natalie, Willow, Kirk, Hoss the Dog, Nora, and Chris. You all make this possible, and I am endlessly grateful. And I also am grateful to everyone else, um, because because now that people actually like pay attention to this shit, we have a fucking chance, right? Like We can all like take care of each other and like live happily ever after as everything's on fire, and we'll figure it out, right? We'll figure it out. Okay. Be well.